the topic at hand. What is it that we are asking? Does science discredit faith? Do we mean that to say, does science disprove faith? Uh, does it displace faith? Does it somehow trivialize faith? Now, there's a kind of ambient culture uh, in many scientific communities which can be dismissive of faith. So I think it's helpful to make distinctions in order to better, better appreciate uh, what is at stake uh, and how best to hold fast to what is good. So to speak in kind of broad and sweeping way about 19th century developments that have brought us to the place where we are now, uh, we can see that there is a kind of sense downstream of Hegel and Marx and Auguste Comte uh, that religion or faith is a kind of primitive version of science. It's sentimental, it's naive, it's childish, it's hyper-dependent, contrary to the noblest aspirations of the human spirit, which are for a kind of unassailable autonomy. And rather, what we observe is a movement away from faith and towards science, a kind of inevitable progress, an inexorable evolution. You can think here of Marxist ideologies which usually speak of an apocalyptic third age in which an underclass will come into possession of the goods of the earth, whatever those might be, and in so doing, usher in a kind of utopic period of general benevolence, right? So oftentimes science or practitioners of science, philosophers of science will seize upon this notion. And what we see in effect, to kind of harken to Hegelian themes, is that uh, reason will be self-realized at that point and in a certain sense deified, okay? So that's the atmosphere in which we are often working, living, and breathing. So here, we're just going to make a very simple and modest claim, namely that science does not discredit faith if both are understood properly. So if practiced well, the disciplines do not genuinely conflict. Uh, and in fact, they investigate different things under different aspects or lights and with different methodologies. So they can in truth be complementary in their consideration or interrogation of reality. So I just have uh, three small points. The first is an introductory notion about formal and material objects, which at this point might sound jargony, but will be clear in about seven minutes. And then a brief philosophy of science, and then a yet briefer philosophy of faith with a short conclusion. I expect to speak for about 28 to 30 minutes, and if you have to leave at any point, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, so, first, introductory consideration, material objects and formal objects. St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, a Dominican friar of the 13th century, a great philosopher and theologian, wrote a work called Superboethium de Trinitate, which is a commentary on Boethius's work on the Trinity. And in uh, the fifth and sixth books of that, he describes the division and method of the sciences. And there, he's drawing distinctions about how we investigate certain dimensions of reality, which isn't just to say, like, integral parts, like some things study this thing over here on the left and some things study this here over on the right, but rather he's making a philosophical distinction and he's employing uh, abstraction, which we'll talk about here. So in the case, he says, of natural philosophy, what we do is we abstract from individual matter. So we cease to consider um, this flesh and these bones, and instead we consider flesh and bones. Then he says the next level of abstraction is practice in mathematics, and there we abstract from all sensible matter, okay? Basically all but quantity and figure, which for him is the fourth species of the accident quality, which is not terribly important at this stage, but I thought you might like to know. Um, the third form of formal abstraction is when one abstracts from all matter, when one ceases to consider the object under consideration, except in light of most universal notions, namely 
under the aspect of being or unity or truth or goodness, for example. So abstraction, taken from the Latin abstrare, just means to draw away from. And when one draws away from, um, we here have to introduce considerations of what it is that is seen and then how it is seen, because that is most pertinent uh, and that's most helpful in our clarification of how it is that one practices a discipline. So the formal object of each of these sciences is conditioned by the manner in which abstraction is practiced. So he says, in natural philosophy, one considers ens mobile, which is to say mobile being. You consider matter under the aspect of movement or motion. And you can read in Aristotle's Physics, in book one, he basically starts phenomenologically. He starts with the observation that things out there move and seem to change. How do we account for that? That's just the beginning of the study. And, and fascinatingly enough, in St. Thomas's first way, uh, among the famous five proofs for the existence of God, the first is taken from motion. And he begins with this, uh, I guess you would say, uh, presupposition. He says, motion is evident to the senses. So St. Thomas starts close to his experience. And so too, he says, in the practicing of sciences. Next, uh, with mathematics, we consider ens mathematica, which is to say number, form, and figure. So this, uh, this is not being in the same sense as is under consideration in natural philosophy. And then with metaphysics, he says, we consider ens commune, or ens in quantum est ens. That is being insofar as it is being. So we're not considering this being or that being, but beingness in a kind of sense. So here, I think this is a nice introduction to consider the difference between material objects and formal objects. I said it sounds jargony, but it'll be clear here now in just about two minutes. Um, so what is it that science does as we consider the physical sciences, principally you know, biology, chemistry, and physics? Well, this roughly aligns with what St. Thomas and Aristotle would call natural philosophy. This is uh, a hotly debated and controverted point as to how readily one can make this assertion, uh, but I think that we can say that there is a kind of point of uh, linkage here, and, and we can prosecute the discipline accordingly. So what we are considering in, in science is the world. This is, I mean, many scientists would argue that physics is the highest realization thereof, so you kind of start with that as a paradigm. So the world as mathematically quantifiable. So what is under consideration as your material object is basically what exercises force or what exerts force, okay? So what can be measured and quantified. Now, faith, and here, Faith, strictly speaking, is not a science in the classic Aristotelian sense, but faith is the disposition that informs one's approach to theology and to a category which I will broadly call mysticism. Okay, that's, that's the ordinary practice of the faith. So the Christian belief being when one has the virtues of faith and charity, one lives uh, relationally towards God and neighbor in a different way, all right? And that faith makes that possible because it gives access to realities which formerly would not have been readily available. So faith, in faith, whether theological, uh, practiced in theology, like a speculative science, or, or practiced in mysticism, a kind of practical science, the material object is God and his mysteries, and then all things in light of God. So you can think about, you consider the world, but transfigured, all right? Or you consider the world, but in the way that Gerard Manley Hopkins does, does in the poem, you know, God's Grandeur. So you see it as somehow suffused with a, a God logic or a theologic. Now, that's the material object. That's the thing considered. What then about the formal object? Well, a formal object is the light under which one considers the thing at hand. So in what sense or in what way are we considering the material object? So science uh, seeks inductive or probabilistic type of knowledge, right? So we're all familiar with the scientific method. 
right? You make a hypothesis after having gathered some data and you test it, and then you should be able to project and you should be able to observe that Mars has an elliptical orbit if you're Kepler. You know, you should be able to see it played out by confirming signs. And you should have pretty strict normative standards for falsifiability. Right? You don't have standards for verifiability in the same sense because it's inductive. So there are always further determinations to be made. There is yet more matter to be explored. There are yet more test subjects right, to, be, uh, to be, again, kind of entertained. So here, what we're dealing with is probabilistic, right? Um, and it's hypothetical, but borne out, typically, in, by, by a normative standard of falsifiability. And oftentimes, whether we like to admit it or not, um, the ultimate test is usually supplied by use, use in one way, shape, or form, whether that be enjoyment or health or technological progress, okay? So the way that science keeps chugging along as, you know, as if a boat beating on against the current is by proving itself as somehow useful, okay? This is not a denigration of science in any way. It's just to say that's how it plays out practically. Okay, now, the formal object of faith. The formal object of faith is, this will sound very bizarre and abstract, wild and woolly and unscientific, but bear with me, okay? The formal object of faith is first truth speaking. Right. That doesn't sound like a thing. <laughs> that sounds like an unverifiable assertion. Bingo. Okay. Um, so the formal object of faith is first truth speaking, which is to say the reason that a Christian or the reason that a believer of any stripe believes is because someone has spoken. First truth speaking. And the Christian claim is that truth himself is the one speaking. So then, one considers all things in light of that revelation, is how it is ordinarily termed. So for instance, uh, for a Christian to choose amongst doctrines is a kind of exercise in futility, because either God speaks truly, or he doesn't. So St. Thomas will say, you know, he, he envisions the creed as a series of 14 propositions. He says, if I hold to 13 of the 14 propositions, but do not hold to the 14th, I don't actually hold any of those propositions by faith. Rather, I hold 13 of them by opinion because they accord with my sensibilities, and I reject the one on account of the fact that it does not. Because if I believe by faith, then I am actually putting my trust, a kind of fiduciary trust, in the one who reveals, and as a result of which I submit my intellect in a kind of steady disposition of belief. Okay, so that's our first consideration. Material objects and formal objects. Simple, but it's just what are we considering and why or under what light? So then given this, let's do a brief philosophy of science and then a philosophy of faith. So a philosophy of science. Let's examine the philosophical tenets operative at the root of scientific praxis. So a classical background and then a modern variation on the theme. So science is taken from the Latin word scientia, which is taken from the verb shire, which just means to know. Okay, so science is a kind of knowing. And classically explained, it is a certain knowledge through causes. So it is a causal knowledge in which one can formulate a causal picture of the thing under consideration. So in Aristotle's estimation, science differs from doubt, differs from opinion, differs from suspicion. Because in doubt, one is suspended between two positions, neither of which garners assent. In opinion and suspicion, you hold to one, but for fear that the other proposition may obtain, you just don't have a sufficient data set, or you don't yet have terra firma on which to rest your feet. In the case, though, of science, you actually see 
the conclusions of the science through the principles. So a classic syllogism would be all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. What the conclusion that you have drawn is present in the premises, and what you're doing in the science is teasing that out. So it's demonstrative, okay? It admits of no, um, yeah, it brooks of no questioning in the way that inductive sciences do, okay? Uh, so there's also classically a distinction drawn between speculative sciences and practical sciences. So speculative science are just those sciences ordered to knowing. Okay, and we have, we have small hints of this in the physical sciences. Sometimes people just like want to know what's in space because it's awesome, right? I want NASA to pay $40 billion for me to fly something through like jets emitted from the moons of Saturn because I suspect that I might be able to pick up like microbial excrement and thereby prove that there's life there. Will we ever be able to get there? Like, no, not a chance. Will it be like useful for our purposes of colonization? No way. But it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Okay. Um, so that a speculative science is the type of thing that is just worth knowing, as it were, and admits uh, it may not even admit a further use, or if it does, that for you is a kind of secondary consideration. Then you have practical sciences, which are ordered towards knowledge for the sake of action. The classic example is ethics and or politics. Okay, so that's our classical background. How about uh, a brief modern background? Uh, this is to go very, very fast and to draw wild uh, overgeneralizations, but pardon me. So uh, typically philosophy, modern philosophy is identified... Uh, typically as um, either English or continental in, um, in the modern tradition. So like Enlightenment thinkers uh, kind of date from Descartes on the continent or from Hume uh, on the, uh, the English or British Isles. Uh, and with both of these, we can find certain common veins or uh, points, of, points of fruitful comparison. So both men reconceive inquiry in light of the perceived failure of Aristotelian sciences. So it seems to have been the case that this demonstrative notion, this classical notion, has not proved very efficacious. Man seems to have labored under the weight of a dark, dark age for nearly seven centuries. And now we over, or kind of like throw off, um, yeah, the perceived oppression and shackles associated with that system and proceed according to a different paradigm. And a lot of it is taken up with epistemology and with rational probity. Okay, so like a discipline called criteriology. All of which is just to say that now a principal preoccupation of philosophy is how do we know that we know. So recall when I said St. Thomas Aquinas begins the first way with motion is evident to the senses, right? So for him that's just commonsensical, and to deny that would betray uh, a kind of insanity on the part of the inquirer. So, so in a certain sense he's unconcerned with that argument because it strikes him as something that actually is defeating of inquiry, right? It is to decapitate oneself. Whereas uh, what we find in modern philosophy is a, a big-time, uh, I don't know, investment in or at least concern with epistemology. So on the one hand, you know, you have rationalism, which proceeds by a kind of methodological doubt. So Descartes calls everything into question except the structure of his own thinking and begins to build up reality from what he discovers incrementally. And then you have empiricism associated with Hume uh, and his descendants, right? And there you begin with a kind of methodological skepticism. So, whereas ordinarily I would say, like, I push this thing and it moves, Hume will say things like, you can't actually establish a causal relation. We have associated ideas, and we have a mental concept or a mental structure whereby to process that engagement, but we can't say that I caused it, because that's to go too fast and too loose, because such a thing is not actually supplied by sensation. 
summary points about um, modern philosophy. <clears throat> one, one thing is natures and causes are narrowed in scope. So we do not entertain notions that are not available to sense impressions or uh, to what Descartes called like lazy declare, like, like clear and distinct ideas, all right, in a basic sense. So that is ruled out to core, and as a result of which we need to build from something that is more criteriologically sound in their estimation. All right? And as a result of which you bracket formal and final causality. So usually in the classic Aristotelian picture, not only do you consider like the stuff, like what is the stuff, <clears throat> and the shape of the stuff or the form of the stuff, but you also have a sense of where the stuff is going, and you also have a sense of, excuse me, not only do you consider the stuff and then what's moving the stuff, but you consider the shape of the stuff and then where the stuff is going, right? So you consider a formal cause, what makes a thing to be what it is, and you consider a final cause, that towards which it is ordered or inclined, not necessarily as a mental or conscious state, but like gravity, for instance, is something that would ordinarily be described in these terms. Uh, so yes, these things are set aside. <clears throat> Second, what you have is a mechanistic concept of nature, all right? Uh, so the notion of what is material is just reduced to extension. Uh, so to explain a corporeal thing now is to explain the parts and the relations that obtain among the parts. And then the third and final is a standard of mastery. So uh, typically modern sciences reject or resist at the very least. <clears throat> the distinction between speculative and practical and rather it projects its findings in terms of what is useful or util. An example here, you can think of research grants. I don't know how many of you have gotten money to study something because you thought it was awesome, right? Usually, you have to be able to report back to your PI and to the grant giver that you have done something for humanity, something that is measurable, and something that at least uh, has a hope for improving the human condition in some materially verifiable way. Now, a last point on the philosophy of science is where then... Uh, does science, modern science, overstep its bounds? Where does it make bad methodological moves? I think we can identify two. One is materialistic reductionism, and the second is scientism. So it's, it's perfectly legitimate to bracket formal and final causality as a kind of methodological thing, right? But, but bracketing soon becomes denying, and then denying soon becomes a kind of tacit first philosophy. So it becomes an unstated presupposition of a lot of sciences that to even entertain Final causality uh, is silly, naive, childish, to be lampooned, okay? And you can think of, like, Moliere's description in Tartuffe of the dormative power, right, that such a thing is the kind of thing that causes sleep. For him, it's nonsensical, it's insane, it's to be uh, dismissed. Um, what we often find is that scientists will metaphysically overinterpret the findings of science because of this tacit first philosophy, so the periodic table just comes to mean atomic reductionism, okay? So like even though we don't see a lot of these things in the wild, and truth be told, many of them exist in like momentary and very unstable states, we have it in our mind that these are the building blocks. When truth be told, a more classical conception is like you and I are building blocks, right? Trees are building blocks. Spike, you know, the uh, stegosaurus in the land before time, he is a building block, okay? So um, atomic... Uh, or like a periodic table just means atomic reductionism. Another example would be evolution just means that all things are by chance, and the notion of chance is usually just eviscerated. Or like social conditioning just means that we don't have free will. I would submit to you that those things are over-interpreted or falsely interpreted claims that are made by scientists who have a kind of tacit first philosophy that admits of greater scrutiny. 
And then scientism is just to say, uh, scientism is a kind of epistemological question begging. So you say the only thing that matters for our point is just force and stuff. And then other people try to claim that there are other things that matter, and you say that they don't matter because we had already decided that the only things that matter are force and stuff. Okay? Uh, scientism, again, this is not especially charitable, and it's kind of rough and ready, but, the, but like, the, the claim is that only science yields genuine knowledge, right? And it's typically results-based. So an objection that you'll often hear is like, yeah, show me the progress from the Aristotelian scientific paradigm, and then show me the project, progress downstream of the industrial and scientific revolution. Like, which would you have? Like, do you want like 18 of your teeth to have cavities in them right now? It's like, no, I don't, okay? But that's a, <laughs> that's a fallacy of accident. Moving on, okay. So third and final point, a philosophy of faith. So here we're talking about a philosophy of theology, as it were, or philosophy of mysticism. Again, we're just interrogating the experience of those who have the disposition, who have the virtue, which uh, admits of engaging with things revealed, okay? So philosophical tenets. Faith-based discourse is knowledge based on testimony. We have natural kind of uh, ways by which to explain this. So, for instance, I've never been, uh, where have I never been? I've never been to Miami, okay? But I trust that Miami is where the cartographer says it is in South Florida because were he to put it someplace else, then he would not be very long employed as a cartographer, okay? Um, so... It seems to be the case that I can rely on testimony for certain things, and I have reasons whereby to adhere. Now, supernaturally, this obtains with respect to God and the things of God, okay? So the notion is that God makes himself known, and as a result of which I can have sure, certain knowledge, a certainty that actually exceeds the certainty of science by virtue of the fact that the testator is more to be relied upon than our fallible senses. That will sound irrational. We'll unpack it. Um, the certainty in a faith claim hinges on the testator. I don't know if you have proof that your parents are your parents, right? But I think most of us find them reliable in this regard. <laughs> you know, we don't say like, prove it, you know. Until such time as you do, I will never hug you, okay? All right, so the certainty hinges on the testator, all right? And then uh, a kind of quick philosophical or um, scholastic distinction taken from St. Augustine and adopted by St. Thomas Aquinas just to identify, there are three dimensions at work in faith that are classically conceived. He, he lists them as credere deum, credere deo, and credere in deum. And that just means to say, to believe God, to believe in God, and to believe in a certain sense unto God. So there's a personalistic dimension to faith, okay? We believe God because truth himself speaks truly, else there is nothing true. So he has shown himself to be trustworthy and as a result of which we invest in a relationship. There is also a propositional notion to this faith claim. Okay, so credere deo, to believe in God. I believe what he says. So it's a content-rich relationship. It places claims on one's life. And then third and finally, there's an effective dimension. So St. Thomas will read this last, credere in deum, as pertaining to the will. It's something into which we lean. So faith fructifies in hope and charity. That is to say, it is to be born out in these kind of tethers of affection, not in the base sense of emotion, but in the sense of heart inclining unto heart. Okay? A basic definition of faith. St. Thomas says, Faith is a habit of mind whereby eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect assent to what is non-apparent. You can think here of the definition in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Another classic definition is one given by St. Augustine. Faith is to think 
with assent. Summary points then about um, a kind of philosophy of faith. One, faith or the claim made or advances that man is kapox revelationis, that we are actually capable of receiving revelation. Classically, this is described as an obediential potency. It's something that's not really in our nature in the strict sense, but it is not repugnant to our nature. And as a result of which, when it comes, as if unbidden, it finds in there a welcome home. Okay. So another way that St. Thomas will describe obediential potency is with respect to miracles. He'll say that water doesn't have any natural potency to become wine, but by virtue of the fact that it admits of the change, it has an obediential potency to become so when Christ acts upon it. That sounds confusing, but basically what we're saying is that grace perfects and does not destroy nature. It makes it to be further realized by healing it in the kind of Augustinian tradition and elevating it in the Thomistic tradition. So once, well, I'll just move on from that. First, man is kapox revelationis. Two, homo religiosus, okay? That is to say that humans are naturally religious. This sounds bizarre, but St. Thomas will give it an excellent defense. We stand in a kind of cosmic relationship of indebtedness. So we are born into a network of relationships. We are by nature familial animals, social animals, and political animals. We can't divest ourselves of those things. There's no state antecedent to the state whereby we live as noble savages, okay? Rather, we are always and everywhere related. And part of that being related is being related to our origin and end, says St. Thomas Aquinas, which we can actually acknowledge by reason. We can reason from the fact of our contingent existence to a necessary one, and as a result of which, we owe it some form, he says, of obsequia is the word that he uses, or worship, right? We need to have this cosmic state reflected adequately in our interior life, or we'll always be in rebellion against what is and what obtains. So how we do this, he says, is by the virtue of religion, which is to say that we owe God a debt. So we owe him um, a kind of worship in light of the fact that he is... He has given us everything. Um, and then third and finally, it is reasonable to believe. That's the, the, the third and final philosophical tenet of the, this faith philosophy here. It is reasonable to believe. Uh, you might just ask yourself, what percentage of my knowledge is verifiable? I would submit to you that it's very small, okay? Whether by virtue of distance, relative size, instruments requisite for verifying our competence to actually practice such a thing or our expertise, very little of what we know, we actually know, in the strict sense of science, or scientia in the classical way. Rather, a lot of it we take on testimony. I have never operated a scanning electron microscope, but my biology textbook is, is just punctuated by sweet pictures supplied thereby. And I look and I say, yes, I assent, okay? Because I trust that this biology textbook would not have many additions were they to propagate false things, okay? I know in like an age of fake news, a lot of this is kind of being eroded, but alas, all right, I'll still make the claim. I am just naive enough to stand up here with assurance. So the last point for this third and final is, where then does faith overstep? Where does it make bad methodological moves, which actually undermines its credibility in the public square? I'll list four. First, obscurantism and anti-liberalism. General notions abroad that uh, church or ecclesial bodies are opposed to progress, CF Crusade, CF Inquisition, CF Galileo, okay? Or that the church is prone to pronounce on issues that don't pertain to the substance of faith, all right? A kind of general skepticism towards scientific advance makes the church react and say things that are beyond its ken. This has happened. Part of being historical is just knowing when 
things have been done poorly, acknowledging them, but don't letting that, not permitting that to hamstring further efforts at discourse. Second, metaphysical naivete. So you've heard of the God of the gaps argument, right? The notion being that God is often used to explain things that science has not yet discovered or found the way by which to explain. And so religionists will often launch in there and say, this must be God. But as science progresses, those gaps get smaller and God is forced out of the conversation. But I would submit to you that often that is a result of looking for God according to this paradigm of force and stuff. God answers to different questions, and I think religionists need to be mindful of that and to deploy a philosophy of both religion and science that accords with that vision. Third, uh, fundamentalism, uh, which is a kind of exegetical tradition, a way of reading the scriptures that is overly literalistic. So the scriptures have a literal sense, but they are not to be read literalistically. So they are to be read attentive to the genre in which things are being stated. So, for instance, Genesis 1 through 11 has, within the Christian tradition, often been read allegorically. A word used that people have an allergic reaction to is myth, but I think that's fine, okay, because myths are used to propagate truths according to a certain standard of truth, which is namely kind of anthropological and religious truths, all right? So Genesis is not describing, necessarily, a six-day creation. St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, acknowledged this. Rather, he says, if it were the case that the sun were created on the fourth day, then how would one measure the time of the first three days, right? So he saw this, he admitted it, and as a result of which he was able to engage with the scriptures in a way that's far more rich and telling. He has two texts on Genesis, uh, which I would recommend heartily. Fourth and finally, fideism. Uh, Fideism is a kind of philosophical stance whereby one just rejects the deliverances of reason, Okay, a classic example cited to this effect is the, the words of Tertullian, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? What can reason possibly do to inform my faith? All right, and, and this can come from a variety of quarters, um, but certainly for religious traditions which have a notion of radical depravity, right, that we have nothing good of our own except what grace can scrap from this rubbish heap, right, have a difficult time explaining the vigor, right, um, and the vibrancy of the contribution of human reason. But that's something to which we want to cling. That's something that we want to salvage. Okay, I realized I've talked quickly. Uh, Small conclusion. So does science science discredit faith? You must be shocked to find that the answer is no. (laughs) Rather, I contend that faith and science are compatible, right, and that with a notion of truth, which has our minds conformed to reality, we need never fear that disciplines which are actually ordered to what is will genuinely conflict, because all truth, says Hans Urs von Balthasar, is symphonic. Faith and science are two modes of discerning the one truth. The supposed incompatibility comes as a result of methodological error or overstepping of the stripes that we have just described. So thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to field your questions.